Amen. So over the last two summers, I've managed to cross off my list of must-see places, several, several locations, and two come to mind this morning. The last year in Paris, the Louvre, and this summer in Amsterdam, the Rijksmuseum. Now, I visited other galleries and points of interest, but at the Louvre, everyone wants to see da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And at the Rijksmuseum, everyone wants to see Rembrandt's The Night Watch. Now, I took pictures. People take pictures of pictures. Instead of just looking at them and, and drinking them in, they take pictures of them, sometimes close-up pictures. I took pictures of the crowds gathered in adoration of each of those paintings. Now, the Night Watch is a huge painting, so a big crowd can't hide the whole thing. You can still see some of it from far off, but the Mona Lisa is very small. And a crowd standing in front of the Mona Lisa hides it from anybody who's even a few paces away. Now, both paintings are in very nice frames, if anybody notices. But no one goes to an art gallery to check out the frames. In our Gospel reading today, Jesus' dispute with the scribes and Pharisees is over what he sees as their obsession with the frame and their ignorance of the picture. Now, about those Pharisees and their Gospel henchmen, the scribes, I grew up, and maybe you did too, on sermons and Sunday school lessons that created an image of villains, you know, like landlords and loan sharks and melodramas preying on the poor. Or Robert Burns's Holy Willie. You can tell I grew up with a Presbyterian minister, or a Scottish minister. Robert Burns's Holy Willie, a hypocritical Presbyterian elder, praying on everyone, but praying only for himself. In Jesus' time in Palestine, the scribes and Pharisees are part of a boiling religious soup. They actually have little power among or over the people. But what they do is important, nonetheless. If it wasn't for the scribes, Jews and Christians wouldn't have any scriptures. The, the first Christian writers followed in their tradition. If it wasn't for the Pharisees, very little, if anything, of Judaism or the Jewish foundation of the church would have survived the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And we can find hints in the Gospels, times when the scribes and Pharisees aren't bad guys, they are generally interested in figuring Jesus out. What kind of rabbi is he? What kind of Jew is he? And Jesus even calls his followers to become scribes for the kingdom of God. The scribes and Pharisees maintained a frame around the law of God and Moses. Sometimes they called it a fence. And it was a set of practices that was first intended to help faithful people avoid breaking the law. They also saw it as protecting the law from careless people because the law of God and Moses were a sacrament to them to be handled with care. And the Gospels were written down a generation after Jesus' time when the gap between the Jews who followed Jesus and the Jews who didn't was growing wider and wider. And the argument over the place of the Gentiles, the outsiders in God's plan, was getting hotter and hotter. 
Defenders of Jewish tradition and the laws of God and Moses became active in opposition to the Jesus people. Pharisees like Saul of Tarsus. And this is the time and this is the light in which the Gospels were written. So arguments, discussions Jesus might have had with scribes and Pharisees are remembered as serious disputes, major battles. And the scribes and Pharisees we meet in the Gospels are more cartoon figures than real men. But we can read in the story Mark tells a pharisaical complaint against the early church because these Christians gather, some of them even use the word synagogue for their gathering, but they don't follow all the traditions. And they eat. Every time they gather, they eat. But do they ever wash anything? These Christ followers, this new sect, they've just gone too far outside the frame. And maybe they'll break the frame beyond repair. We have to stop them. So those first followers in Mark's congregation, they hear Jesus stand up for them and say things they couldn't dare say. The first Christians believed Jesus called them to a new way to be faithful, a way to honor the spirit of the law of God and Moses. And Jesus was very clear that law was still sacred. The people who were supposed to honor and uphold the sacred law they went ahead and built a big, thick frame around it, a frame so heavy they had to spend their whole lives propping it up and making sure it didn't pull away and fall off the wall. And the lectionary skips over a good example of this in Mark chapter 7. Apparently the frame could be used to serve the needs of some people who wanted to break one of the laws. In order to be sure that offerings were ready when the time for worship came, I remember my mother putting money in two church envelopes every payday so that it would be there because cash was short, money was tight. The scribes and Pharisees didn't have any cash flow issues, but they practiced that and they called it Corban. And it seems that some of them had a habit of sheltering money by calling it Corban. But they sheltered it from their aged parents. Mom, Dad, we can't help you this week. You know why? Corban. Have to give it to the temple. Can't keep the fifth commandment this week, Mom and Dad. We'll honor it next time. Corban. Tradition. Isaiah said it and Jesus repeats it. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are, from, are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. So why does anything religious people might build to keep sacred things safe become so sacred itself? And after a while, people start to ignore the holy that is hidden inside. And they forget the reason for building it in the first place. Here's, I think, a current example 
A former teaching colleague of mine, David Dean, has become a well-known commentator on all things Roman Catholic. And not just in Catholic media, CTV, CBC, Global, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, papers in his native Ireland and the UK call on him for comment. And in a recent column in the Times of London, Dr. Dean makes a strong case for approaching, <clears throat> not excusing, but approaching sexual abuse by priests and bishops as in large part a structural issue. The Roman Church, he says, has built a structure of tradition, an administrative structure, a power structure, that has made it incapable of any response to a problem except denial and cover-up, all to protect the frame. He actually believes Pope Francis will resign. He also believes the Pope heard what he wanted to hear and he didn't want to believe the accusations against the Cardinal from Washington, Cardinal McCarrick. Such things didn't fit inside the frame. Dr. Dean also believes, and he's not alone in this, that every bishop in every country where there have been allegations, where there is any evidence, every bishop must tender his resignation tear the frame apart, tear the leadership structure down, let lay Catholics, non-Catholics, men and women, and not just priests and bishops, do the investigating. And then build a new frame the church can live in on a foundation of shared leadership. And any bishop who is found innocent would be allowed to withdraw his resignation but he would also have to learn new ways of leading. Now, Protestants can't be complacent because all churches in our part of the world are living in structures, frames, we really can't afford to prop up anymore and that don't serve us well anymore. And I'm not talking about buildings here. This isn't a sermon about buildings. I'm not just about buildings. But administrative structures and power structures and ways of leading and teaching, traditions. Now, traditions can function <clears throat> as a rich legacy, the living faith of the dead. But far more often, tradition is a curse, the dead faith of the living. The seven deadly words we've never done it that way before. Or, I was taught this was right and that was wrong. They didn't tell me why, but I know it doesn't work anymore. But that's what I was taught, and who am I to say my teachers, my parents were wrong? Tradition. But there's a little seed of doubt behind those words, especially when they're said with so much force. There's a nagging feeling. You know you need to change your mind, your actions, your faith, and something is chipping away at that frame you've known and loved. So could that doubt you can't shake off, that itch you can't scratch, could it be the Holy Spirit? Tradition and the ongoing work of God's Spirit aren't always at odds. 
But tradition has been the church's way of avoiding, even stifling, the Spirit's voice and activity for a very long time. We have made a tradition of it. Next time, next time you're watching TV, I find it hard to find many people in this congregation who will admit to me that they watch TV, but I know that you do. I know that you do. So the next time you're watching broadcast network TV, especially a Blue Jays game, it seems to pop up a lot, look out for a Samsung ad promoting their new QLED televisions. Now, the commercial offers a quick survey of sizes and styles of TV sets. From the time when people bought sets as much for the frame as for the picture. Oh, look at the wood on that. That tone is going to be... This is radio listeners buying TVs. The tone is going to be so good, but the screen is only this big. And over time, televisions got smaller and smaller. You know, when I started in ministry, I still did pastoral visits in homes that were like the one I grew up in. In the living room, there were two TVs. There was a portable color set that people actually watched, and there was an old black and white in the corner that served as a side table because the cabinet was too good to give up on. Well, what's happened is that the cabinets have gone away, and the frames around the picture have got thinner and thinner. And now the newest TVs have next to nothing around them, and the new QLEDs apparently have closer to nothing around them. But its best feature, the best feature of the QLED, is that it all but disappears when it's switched off. It's transparent. In the commercial, it literally blends in with the wallpaper. Almost frameless held up and kept together by what's needed and by what works, but not surrounded by woodwork, no matter how lovely it is. But when it's switched on, when it's doing what it was designed to do, the picture is beautiful, and it's clear, and it's lit up for all to see. So you and I are the picture, the people who are the church. And when neighbors see us, when people come and look, what do they see? What do they see first? The frame, the structure, the tradition, all of those things that we so often say, and frankly, many people around us, around us also say, all of those things that are really the frame, but people conclude they're the church. So when people look on, do they see the frame or do they see the picture? Amen. Glory to God.